The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. There's a passage in the canon where some monks are leaving to go to a far distant country where people don't know much about Buddhism. So they go to say goodbye to the Buddha. And he says, have you paid your respects to Sarabhuta? I say, well, no, we haven't. Say, so go pay your respects to him. So they do. And he asks them, the people in that far distant land are known to be wise. And if they ask you, what does your teacher teach? What are you going to tell them? And the one say, well, we would have come a long ways to hear what you would tell them. So the very first thing that Sarabhuta says is, our teacher teaches the ending of passion. No mention of the Four Noble Truths, no mention of the Three Characteristics, the ending of passion, because that's the goal of practice. It's through ending the clinging, and the craving, ending of passion. That the end of suffering is brought about. And it's good to keep that in mind, that all the teachings of the Buddha gave are for the sake of ending clinging, ending passion. And so when we think about the topic of not-self, which is the topic for today. The question is how best to approach this topic and how best to use it in a way that leads to the ending of clinging. Right up front, I want to say, in case Zoom goes down and you want to take away right away, the takeaway is that when the Buddha is talking about not-self, he's not saying there is no self. He never, of course, says that there is a self. Basically, it comes down to saying, what you are is not the problem. The problem is clinging to your ideas of what you are. And so the not-self-teaching is best meant as a tool to approach that issue of clinging. And what's interesting about it, even though your ideas about what you are are part of the problem of leading to suffering, we're going to be using your ideas of what you are as part of the solution. So when the Buddha was asked, is there a self, is there no self? He didn't answer. There are two passages that are relevant here. One was when a wanderer named Wachigota came to the Buddha and asked him that question point blank. Another is where the Buddha is actually talking to the monks as a, as a large group. On this level. See if that's any better. Okay. With Wajakota, the wonder, he asked the question, the Buddha remained silent. So Wajakota got upset and left. Ananda, who was sitting by, asked the Buddha, why didn't you answer him? The Buddha gives four answers to Ananda. One of which is that if I'd said, yes, there is a self, I'd be siding with the eternalists. If I said there was no self, I'd be siding with the annihilationists. Now, those are two groups of people who the Buddha said extreme wrong views. He went on to say, if I said there is a self, would that be in line with the teaching that all dhammas are not self? No. And if I said there is no self, then it's poor wonder would have been confused. Does the self I used to have no longer exist? 
So the Buddha doesn't give an explanation more than that. It is, it is interesting, though, that he doesn't say that no, either way. There is a self, there is no self. He's basically saying, no matter how you define a self, no matter what you say about whether there is or is not a self, it's going to lead to problems. It's going to lead to wrong view. We'll get into a little bit later what some of these issues are. The other instance where the Buddha was talking about the issue, this time he was talking not just to the wanderer. He was talking to the monks at large. He was basically saying there are certain questions that are simply not worth paying attention to. And among the questions that are not worth paying attention to are the questions like, do I exist? Do I not exist? What am I? How am I? Buddha says you try to answer these questions even though either with the Buddha views that there is, you have a self or that you don't have a self which he calls a tangle of views, a wilderness of views, a writhing of views. You get entangled with these views, and you're not set free. So the whole purpose of the teaching has to be something else, besides just coming in on the question of whether there is or is not a self. It's good to look at some of the consequences, though, of saying, yes, there is a self, or no, there is no self, why the Buddha would want to avoid answering those questions. Basically, when you say, yes, there is a self, that whatever you say it is, whether it's permanent or impermanent, form or formless, it's going to become an object of attachment. There's a passage in Deacon Nagaya 15 where the Buddha lists the various ways in which self can be defined, either as having a form and finite, having a form and infinite, formless and finite, formless and infinite. That pretty much covers all the ground. In each of those cases, you can say either the self already is that way, or it can be made to be that way, or it naturally become that way, say, when you go to sleep or when you, when you die. So those three modes times four types of self, it gives you 12 self-views that you can go for. And the Buddha puts them all aside. He says, you look at the way they define the self, and none of them are really worth going with. Now, notice that it's a value judgment he's making here. But I want to make this point again and again throughout the day. That the Buddha is not, he's less interested in, in talking about what you are, but talking about the value judgment of whether something is worth claiming to be self or not self. Now, the consequences of saying, no, there is no self. One, you can round up with the question of, well, who's doing the practice then? And who are we doing this for? There was a study made years back of infant behavior. And the psychologist noticed that one of the things that makes children the happiest especially little tiny children, is when they figure out they can do something and they get a result and they do it again and they get the same result. And this is why children start banging away on, on something and drives you crazy. But for them, it's not just the sound. It's the fact that they've learned something about causality. They've learned something that they have some power to have an influence on their environment. And this is main source of delight for infants. And we'll see that this sense of agency is going to be important for doing the path. Because as the Buddha said, you want to be able to delight in abandoning unskillful qualities and to delight in developing skillful qualities. And this quality of delight does not happen when you feel that you are powerless to make a difference. In fact, if you feel that you're powerless, you cannot make a difference through your choices. It leads to depression. Whereas the Buddha is making this, it says the path to the end of suffering has to be a path that you get light in. 
So that's the first consequence of saying there is no self. It calls into question the whole question of who's doing the practice, who's going to benefit from it. Secondly, if you have the view there is no self, what do you do with it? It's kind of a view that you set forth and then you take on all comers, you argue with other people, and then you have to get attached to it. Another consequence of calling into question of who's acting and who's going to receive the results of the action is that it becomes a license for irresponsibility. There was a case in Majjhima 109 where the Buddha is talking about how the advocates are not self. And a monk comes up with this question. If the aggregates are not self, then what self is going to be affected by the actions done by what is not self? In other words, there's no agent and there's going to be nobody receiving it. You can do what you want. So to say there is no self can also be used as an excuse for irresponsibility. You also have the practical problem is that when people meditate and they arrive at a blank state, they convince themselves that they've achieved awakening. The idea that once you see there is no self, that is awakening. And then they get stuck at that level. There's also the problem of people saying that, believing that if you arrive at the view that there is no self, then you are awakened. Again, the Buddha never talks about views as being what you arrive at. Even right view is a means of the end. It's part of that raft that goes across the river. That has to be abandoned when you get to the other side. So these are some of the reasons, I think, why the Buddha would not want to say there is no self, or not want to say there is a self. It's a question that he puts aside. You have to understand, when he puts a question aside, what does that mean? He saw that there were four ways of answering questions. First, he called categorical, which is where you basically say yes or no across the board. There's the analytical, when you have to define the terms. In this case, if you say we're going to give an analytical answer to the question of whether there is or is not a self, you would have to say, well, how do you define self? What do you mean when you say self? Third type of question is counter-questioning. In other words, before you give an answer or a question, you ask some questions of the person who's asking the question to make sure he's going to understand the, or she is going to understand the answer when, when you give it. And then the fourth is question you just put aside because it's not conducive to the end of suffering. So when the Buddha was putting this question aside, it meant not only did he not want to give a straight yes or no answer to it, he also did not want to give an analytical answer. And this is an important point because all too often this is what we're told, that the Buddha would give an analytical answer to the question. In other words, he would say that, yes, you do have a certain kind of self, and no, you don't have another certain kind of self. There are three main theories that you hear, or at least that I'm aware of, and I'd like to go over them. This is important to realize that they actually misrepresent what the Buddha said. The first one is basically says that what the Buddha was negating was the Upanishadic idea of the self. We know that in the Upanishads, they had the theory of the self as being equal to the cosmos. We go to the principle behind the cosmos. And so that this was specifically the view that the Buddha was negating. He wasn't negating the, your sense of, your ordinary sense of you as a separate person. 
Now, the problem here is that it turns out there is not just one Upanishadic view of the self. Remember, I listened to those 12 views just now. The self is finite and form, having a form, infinite having a form, finite and formless, infinite and formless. And that each of those three can be multiplied either by you already are that way, you will become that way naturally at death, or you will you can make yourself to be that way, which gives you 12 types of views. Out of those 12 types of views, you can find eight of them in the Upanishads. So the Upanishads were not speaking with one voice on what the self is. And also the Buddha himself never said that the self had to be permanent to, to qualify as a self. So that's one analytical interpretation that is actually misrepresents what the Buddha said. Second one is that he's saying that no, you don't have a separate individual self, but yes, you do have a cosmic or inter- interconnected self. But again, as we said that the Buddha negated all kinds of ways that you could define yourself. No matter how you define yourself, it can become an object of attachment. You're going to attach to a permanent self and a temporary self just well, attached to a temporary self just as much as you can to a permanent self. You're going to attach to an interconnected self just as much as you can to a separate self. And then you run into the ad- added problems. If you are part of this interconnected whole, it means that you cannot gain awakening until everybody else gains awakening. This would mean that the Buddha himself never really gained awakening. And that we have to wait for everybody, even our political leaders, to get awakening before we can get anywhere. Which I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And it turns out the Buddha actually ridiculed the idea of a cosmic self in no uncertain terms. He says, wherever there's a sense of self, there has to be the idea of what belongs to itself. And if you were the cosmos, it would mean that everything belongs to you. Is that the case? Well, no. You go take your neighbor's car out of his garage and drive down the street. He's not going to be happy. You can't say, well, this is my car. Nobody's going to recognize that. So that's another view that the Buddha put aside. He's not saying that, yes, there is a cosmic or interconnected self, and no, there's no, no separate self. That's not one of his answers. The third interpretation is one that's similar to the first. This is the one that you actually find within some of the old Buddhist texts themselves, and, and it's still promoted nowadays. If there's something to be a self, it has to be permanent. What you are is the aggregates. The aggregates are impermanent, and therefore you don't have a self. That has some of the same problems that we've encountered with the, with the other two. In other words, the, the Buddha is basically saying across the board, you don't answer yes or no to the question whether there's a self. But then you also come up with a, a separate issue, which is the Buddha many times in the canon will be talking about self. We'll be seeing, and we'll discuss later in the day. He talks about making yourself your mainstay, making yourself your governing principle, depending on yourself, using this concepts of I and mine. What when I do what will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? When I do this action, what are the results going to be? We use the concept of I, you use the concept of self quite often. The Buddha does that. So when he's talking about it in terms of self, and, and there really is no self, is he lying? It was to answer this question that they came up with the theory of two truths. The idea being that on a conventional level, there is a self, but on an ultimate level, there is no self. 
But that's the same as saying that the Buddha would speak in terms of what we call useful fictions. And the Buddha himself had said many, many times, there is no such thing as a useful fiction. The idea that something could be untrue but beneficial, he had no space for that in his concept of speech. You also have the problem, which is that if you are just your aggregates, then what happens to you at Nibbana? The aggregates end. Would Nibbana then be annihilation? The Buddha was very clear that this Nibbana was not annihilation. Finally, one of the arguments is given to, in, to bolster this idea. So there's a passage in Manjimo 148, when the Buddha said, you can look at the different aggregates, take feeling as an example. If you look at your feelings, you can see them arising, you can see them passing away. Therefore, you don't see that they are worthy of being called self. This, the argument says, proves that the Buddha felt that the idea of a self must refer to something permanent. But I think the Buddha here is getting some, at something else. As we already saw, that he's, he has no use for any theory of self, whether it's permanent or impermanent, finite or infinite. But what he is saying in Majjhima 148 is, if you see something arise, that can't be you. Because you, you have to be there before it arises. The same way if you see something passing away, it, it can't be you because you can, you're there after it passes away. So this means that we don't have to define self as something permanent. But the Buddha is getting down to is no matter what, how you answer that question, do I have a self, do I not have a self, it's going to get you tied up in all kinds of problems. Which leads to the next question. Well, if the Buddha is not answering that question, what is the question he is answering? And the answer is the question that lies at the basis of discernment, which is what, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? What would I do would lead to my long-term harm and suffering? In other words, discernment or wisdom here is framed in terms of actions for which you are responsible and for which you will benefit. So in that case, we look at self not so much as a thing, but as an activity. Your activity of creating your sense of self, your perception of self. And then the question becomes, what when I do it? What sense of self is useful? will lead to long-term welfare and happiness. What sense of not-self will lead to long-term welfare and happiness? In the sense of being, you're being responsible. You can see this very clearly in the Buddhist instruction to Rahula. When he introduced Rahula to the, the Dharma, in the Sutta, Mantra 161, Sutta, Mantra 61, is an important one. The Buddha is laying out all the basic principles of the practice to his son. And one of them is he has you, he has the son look at his actions before he does them, this is an action he intends to do while he's doing them after they're done. And in each case, he uses the concept of I, this action that I intend to do, this action that I am doing, this action that I have done. The sense of I is very important there. You're taking responsibility for your actions. So this is, it does play an important role in the path, but you have to use it as a tool. As we'll find out, you use the sense of self on the path when you get to a point where, sorry, the message is buzzing by. You get to the point 
where you don't need it anymore. And that's when you drop all senses of self. But in the meantime, you use it as a means. You create a more healthier sense of self that is capable of following the path and is going to benefit from following the path. You use that as your motivation. You use your sense of responsibility to look at your actions, be responsible for your actions. And it's in this way that you can actually follow the path. So basically what the Buddha is wanting you to see how you create your sense of self as you do this. This is going to give you a lot of insight into the actions that you do, the things that you cling to, and enables you to get past them. So again, he wants you to see you create your sense of self as an action. So if we get involved in questions about what, what you actually are, it actually distracts attention from the big question, which is the question of action of how you define yourself. Because as the Buddha said, how you define yourself, you end up, however you define yourself, you limit yourself. Except for the case of how you define yourself around the path. So now the question has become what perceptions of self are conducive to long term well being and happiness? And when are they skillful? And what perceptions of not self are conducive to long term well being and happiness? And when are they skillful? And here we look at the Four Noble Truths. If you want to understand any of the Buddhist teachings, you have to put them in the context of the Four Noble Truths. In this particular case, questions of self and not self, perceptions of self and not self, play different roles depending on which truth you're focused on. Start with the First and Second Noble Truths. You're going to be using the perception of not self as part of a program to get rid of clinging and craving for the sake of dispassion. And you note here, dispassion is a value judgment. You're applying these perceptions to see is this something worth holding on to and when you arrive at dispatch you come to the point where you said no it's not worth it so ultimately you're going to get to a point where everything is not worth holding on to however in the third noble truth you're going to be again letting go of all perceptions which means that in that case you can't have perceptions of self or not self if you hold on to either of those perceptions at that point, it prevents you from realizing third noble truth, which is a cessation of suffering. As for the fourth noble truth, you'll find that you will be using perceptions of self and not self selectively. Your sense of self is, will still have a value here. After all, you are creating a sense of self all the time, anyhow, through the process of becoming, in which you focus on a desire, develop a sense of you as the person who might be able to attain the desired object, and you are the person who will enjoy having the object. And then you as the commentator watching yourself as you're doing this. And this is the process of becoming. You're already doing it. So the Buddha says, well, let's put it to use. Put it to use to help develop virtue, put it to use to help develop concentration, to help develop discernment. So in this case, the self still has value here, so you don't drop it but you do train it to be more skillful until you reach the point where you have to apply the perception of not self to everything. And then you drop that too. Think of the image of the, the raft. You're going to take the raft across the river. You're on this side of the river. There are trees on this side of the river, but there's a lot of danger here. This, the other side of the river is safe. And so you take the trees from this side of the river. And you take the twigs and take the branches and 
tie them up and make them a raft. And then you hold on to that raft and you go across the river. And then when you get to the other side, once you reach the other shore, you don't need the raft anymore. In fact, it would be stupid, the Buddha said, to carry it on your head. So you leave the raft there and then you go on your way. So in the same way, you're, you're going to be using your perceptions of self as part of that raft. Because after all, what's the raft made out of? It's made of things you've got on this side of the river, twigs and branches. You can't sit there and wait for the Nibbana yacht to come and pick you up and take over. So you have to make the raft yourself out of what you've got. So you take what you've got, you try to make it as skillfully put together as possible, and you take it across. Then you put it aside. So you're going to need the perceptions of not-self for the first and second noble truth. You're going to need the perceptions of self and not-self for the fourth. In other words, the self that will be doing the path, benefiting from it. And not-self is a perception you apply to anything that would pull you off the path. And then finally, for the third noble truth, when you finally arrive at the end of suffering, you have to let go of all perceptions. And that includes perceptions of self and not-self. So the Buddha had pinned down an answer to the question of, is there a self or is not a self? He wouldn't have been able to use these strategies in this way. So this is why that particular question gets in the way of our goal here, which is to put an end to clinging. Now, these strategies of self and not self, actually, these are things that we're doing all the time already. Wherever you define a sense of self, there's going to be a sense of not self outside of the boundary. It's just that we tend to be pretty erratic in how we do this. So if you could take a picture of your sense of self as you go through the, through the day, it would be like reflections on skittering across water or an amoeba moving here and moving there and taking different shapes. Sometimes you have the shape of a human being, sometimes an animal, sometimes just a shapeless blob. But your sense of self keeps changing. You have many different selves. And this is an important point to realize. We're not just trying to get rid of one self here. We're trying to look at all our different strategies for happiness, because that's what self is. It's a strategy. Trying to figure out what is worth holding on to, what you have control over, so that you can find happiness. And so, depending on the desire that you have, you will be identifying with different things and dropping other things. In other words, you'd be selfing some things and not selfing other things. Think about when you're a child. Suppose you have a baby sister. The kids down the street are going to beat, up her, beat her up. So you go down and you, you save her. You protect her. Because after all, she is your sister. You come home and she takes one of your toys and starts playing with it and won't give it back. Well, in this case, she's not your sister anymore. She's the enemy. And this is the sort of thing we do all the time defining ourselves in different ways, depending on what we want. What the Buddha is having us do here as part of the path is say, okay, focus on wanting one thing really sincerely, which is an end of suffering. And learn how to be more systematic in how you choose to identify yourself and disidentify yourself so that you can actually attain that goal. So again, the focus here is not so much on what you are, but it's what, what kind of identity you take on, which ones are worth it, which ones are not. Again, by your judgment. When is it worthwhile to identify yourself, yourself with your body? Okay, when you realize okay, you're going to need this body to, to practice, you're going to need this body in order to live a healthy life. Okay, you look after it. It is your body because it is your responsibility. 
Other times you put the body aside. You focus more on your mental qualities. And, and there are times when you say, the body's not me. I've got to take care of the state of my mind instead. So again, this is a process we've been doing all the time, selfing and not selfing. And the Buddha is simply asking us to be more systematic and about it so we can attain a, a really consistent and worthwhile goal. Now, one of the issues that comes up when people, took, when I bring up this issue of how the Buddha never said there is no self, there's that phrase where the Buddha said to another, Sabedamanata, all phenomena are not self. And that's an important insight in the, in the course of the practice. It's going to be one of the insights toward the end of the path. But some people say, well, doesn't that mean that all dhammas, all phenomena are not self? Doesn't that mean there is no self? But look at it in terms of how the Buddha teaches right through in other places as well. There's an interesting passage where Nanda has been, who was one of the Buddhist disciples, has been challenged by the members of another sect saying, what is this? What did your teacher teach? What is he? What, did, what views is he holding? And then the Bendigo, who was the stream editor at that point, he's already gained his first taste of awakening, says, You know, I really can't tell you what views the Buddha has. What about the monks? What are their views? Can't tell you their views either. Well, how about you? I'll tell you my views, but first you tell me yours. And so the wanderers go through the whole series of kind of the questionnaire of that time of the big issues. You know, is the cosmos eternal, non eternal, finite, infinite? Is the self the same thing as the body? Is it something different? When an awakened person dies, does that person exist, not exist, both or either? And in each case, another Vinica says, when you hold on to a view like that, you're holding on to stress. And you're not young, you can't escape from it. And so they ask him, well, what is your view? And he says, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will depend on the coercion that is inconstant. Whatever is in constant stress, whatever stress is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. And they say, well, in that case, you're, you're clinging to that view too. And he says, no, I, through this view, I've seen the escape from it. Because after all, he says, whatever is fabricated put together, the view itself is fabricated put together. So the view itself ultimately will turn around and look at itself to see that it too is something that you should let go. So the, the view uh, it contains the seeds of its own transcendence. And it's the same with sabetamanata, all phenomena in itself. If you first use that, you arrive at the end of the path, you have your first taste of the dhappas. Most people will latch on to that, which is why they don't get full awakening right away. They just get stuck at a lower level of awakening. And so you have to realize, okay, even though this seems to be unfabricated, this too has to be let go of. It's, this too is not so. But then the phrase... That too is a kind of dharma. It's, you know, it's, it's actually fabricated. It too has to be let go. So the way that is phrased is not meant to lead to the conclusion that there is no self, because the Buddha again and again and again says, to say there is no self, to say there is a self, this is going to give you a wrong view. It's going to get you entangled. You use this particular insight first to let go of your attachments to other things, and then you turn it around on itself. You can't do that with the view that there is no self, but you can do it with a phrase, all phenomena are not self. What this means is that right view, when it's really right, contains some message for its own transcendence. It's like those notes that they give in the, in the spy movies. <clears throat> After you've read this note, destroy it. And that way you let go of your final attachment. 
And this, this helps us understand what the Buddha has to say. What you hear also among the Thai forest Johns, which is that when you reach the really highest level of the practice, you have to let go not only of self and not self, you also have to let go of what's the idea of what's true. Okay, it may be true that all phenomena are not self, but you have to learn how to let go of that too. And so when the Buddha says, when you're fully awakened, you don't hold on to truths anymore. You've seen the truth. This is basically connects with the fact that in the Pali Canon, truth is defined in two ways. One, there's a fact, and then there are statements about facts. And so you're going to be letting go of all statements about facts. If you're going to be, if it's the mind, it's going to gain awakening. But you do have the fact of Nibbana, the ultimate happiness. So those are some of the points I wanted to make this morning. That the Buddha did not answer the question of whether there is or is not a self. The teaching on not-self is meant to have you look instead at how you create your sense of self and realize it has its limitations. But within its limitations, there are certain ideas of self that are going to be useful in the path. Others that are going to be totally useless, you want to let go of them from the very beginning. And so you're going to be cultivating a skillful sense of self for part of the path and also learning how to get more skillful in your perceptions of self and not-self until you reach the point where you don't need either. Now, to say that there is a self or is no self, or to define yourself as X, Y, or Z, finite or infinite, connected, interconnected, individual, permanent, not permanent, that's going to get in the way in this process of looking more directly at yourself as an action. So again, that's why the Buddha put that question aside. So those are my thoughts that I wanted to share with you this morning. I have time for Q&A. Uh, thank you, Ajahn. Um, mm-hmm. So my question is to do with uh, the fourth tetrad of the Anapanasati. Uh, the, so you train yourself to breathe out, focusing on inconstancy. And um, how does the... Uh, so presumably that is a ref- shorthand reference to the three perceptions. So how do you know when to apply that? What, what's the appropriate time to apply the perception of inconstancy, stress, and not-self in regards to the fourth tetrad of the Anapanasati? That's the topic for this afternoon. Can you wait? Okay. Okay, okay thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I about a year ago, I... I feel like my meditation opened up quite a bit and, uh, and I was able to bring up, uh, like PT and, and Suka at, at will basically with, uh, with my breath. And it lasted for, you know, maybe like three or four months. And then since then, uh, I seem to be unable to, um, bring it up, um, almost at all in, in any way, uh, like it was. Um, and I guess now I kind of get to a place of, of stillness. Um, but I kind of, uh, but it seems like there's, there's kind of a, a dullness there as well because my mind will subtly start to, to wander, uh, and then I'll kind of, catch myself um 
but I was wondering if you just had any any advice for um, either being able to get back in touch with the PT and, and Suka or uh, potentially what what to do from from the still slash potentially slightly dull state that I'm I'm getting to now. You, you became a bitchy junkie. <laughs> and so what you got to do when something like that comes, you have to say, okay, how much is enough? How much do I actually need? And then learn how to figure out how, how do I go beyond this? So when it, you might, might want to back up and say, okay, I'll just sit here and I will let myself breathe for a while. And then finally the breath comes in. It's going to feel really good. Say, okay, that's the pleasure I was looking for. Where, where am I feeling it now? It might be that you have to now focus on different parts of the body than you did before. It's basically, it's kind of a reset. See how that works. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, Thank you, Ajahn, for the talk. Um, You had said during your talk that the view contains the seeds of fabrication. What do you mean? I did not no. quite understand about you. No, the view. No, the view itself is fabricated. It's something you put together. And so when the view says, mm-hmm. you've got to let go of all fabrications, okay, you let go of other fabrications first, and then you try and say, oh, this view is fabricated too. So I've got to let go of this. It's, it contains the seeds of its own transcendence, is what I said. Oh, okay. 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 Um, I said it's like it's like those oh. messages that say, you know, after you've read this message, destroy the message. Yeah, yeah. You're not just I, holding I'm on just, to that, holding on to that insight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to get to the point where I'm understanding my views behind the um, the um, the thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that right? Should I be trying to understand my views behind the thoughts? Yeah, to ask yourself, well, where does this come from? What assumptions am I, am I making? That's a good. That's a useful question. Because mm-hmm. when you bring the assumptions into the air, when you bring the assumptions up into the light of the full day, you realize okay, this isn't something I really want to follow. Right, right. And sometimes I have a feeling with that, and so it's easy to find where it's coming from but sometimes it's i don't and so it's not so easy um to read that okay i have one more question um with um the current of the the currents that come out of the mind is a person able to understand the current as it comes out of the mind before knowing um Nibbana, or oh, do yeah. they have to wait for? No, no, you can, they are, you, they are. you can start observing that in, in, in your meditation. It's almost like there's this okay. physical feeling there's something going out, and but you don't go with it. Okay, I'm, I'm, I can like, I'm at the point where I can tell when the thoughts are blossoming, but that's it. <laughs> anyway, okay. thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm just trying to place some of these different views of identity uh, in, you know, in actual life, you know, like on Facebook and things like that, when you find all these different views and some of them sound actually really good. Like I do a lot of Qigong practice, which I find really helps with my 
and meditation, but it's a lot about expanding into the universe, drawing the universal chi down. And would that then would that then be a theory of what you say here of um, identifying self with the universe? Well, and actually, how would you, work with that? You, you, don't, you don't have to identify with it. You just say, look, I need I need to make this connection. After all, it's you know the the chi in the universe and the chi in my body are basically the same kind of chi. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to identify. This is me mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm making identification with the universe, which is I'm connecting the energy channels in my body with everything that's out there. Mm-hmm. You can do that without defining yourself. Mm, which I think is what I do. Yeah, that, that really helps to mm-hmm. clarify that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, Ajahn Jeff. Um, I have always been wondering why um, Buddha said, whatever is impermanent is not self. Um, why does self have to be permanent? Well, the question, question. He's, he doesn't say, but he's basically saying, is it is it worth claiming it to be yourself? Is it's a value judgment? If you have you, you can choose what you're going to identify with. Do you want to choose with, choose to identify with something that's that's impermanent? And for the sake of the path, there will be some temporary things that you're going to identify with, which is what we're going to discuss in the afternoon. But ultimately, when you've reached the, the end of the path, you don't need to identify with anything anymore. And so basically, at that point, it's not worth it. Okay. Um, I do have a second question. Um, when going about daily life, I notice a lot of pain and suffering actually come from you know, our ego or me, this is me, they treat me this way or that way. And that's kind of like self, right? Identifying with myself. Um, So I should just change the way I talk to myself. Oh, look, you're identifying yourself with this identity or that identity and just let it go. That's part of it. And also you can tell yourself, look, I don't have to make myself the target of their words. You know, you're going, to, you're going to be choosing what you want to identify with, and, and the you as the victim of other people's mistreatment. That's not usually a good thing to identify with. Yeah, that's a lot of things. Not just other people treat me and how I behave. A lot of things driven by that self. You know. Yeah. yeah well, again, try to see that it, there are many selves in there. It's not just one. Mm-hmm. And decide which which one of the selves you want to identify with, and which ones are actually causing problems. Just choose the one that's skillful. Right, right. Thanks again, Jeff. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm curious as to the ultimate purpose of of trying to determine self or not self um, within the context of one's own perceptions um, as opposed, I mean, in other philosophies um it's it's how the self functions in the larger context of humanity or of existence that's more important so if someone dies for example um in in the legacy of that person or the obituary or whatever it's it's a consideration from the from the 
the people who were in contact with that person who died, what the, um, how that person was in life, if you know what I mean, how the, the, the function of that person. So in other words, um, to what degree I can see in, in like the previous question um, that was posed just now, how it's important not to allow others to determine our sense of self in a destructive way so that it doesn't serve us or anyone else for that matter. So it's unskillful, but by the same token, I wonder to what degree this inquiry is really um, important or, or let's say maybe not important, but um, what are we actually ultimately determining here with this inquiry? Is, is, is it, isn't it more how, what, what purpose we're serving in the community or in the world or in this, or even in the context of a Sangha, for example? Okay. Well, um, you think about the Buddha, his first priority was to gain awakening. And then he said, okay, now what can I do with this awakening? How can I be helpful? So for us, again, this, this, the first, the first priority is how can we find freedom from suffering? And, and how you define yourself around that question, what, which, which selves are skillful, which ones are unskillful for that purpose. Then if you've, you know, p- part of that quest is going to be, the part of that practice is learning to be more generous. Again, you're doing it, you're practicing generosity for the sake of your ultimate freedom. Now, once you've attained ultimate freedom, then, then everything you do can be a gift to everybody else. Again, like the Buddha, he, you know, he gained, finally gained awakening. That's when he was able to help the most people. So, you know, the, the first step, the first priority, though, is how do I identify myself? How do I learn to disidentify so that I can actually follow the path all the way to freedom? Once I've attained freedom, I'll be able to, I'll be free to give everything I can. But it's, it's also not the case that as you're on the path, you're not also helping people, but that's a secondary goal. You're helping people for the sake of training your mind. It sounds like multitasking. <laughs> well, well, it turns out it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I, I, it's great for the Buddha. I mean, I and and of course that's that's why we have this legacy twenty five hundred years later. I mean, I totally get that. But for those of us who are sort of stumbling along in this in this on this path, um, I don't know. There's something about it that sounds that the idea that that it's a means to an end, that helping other people in the meantime until we're awakened sounds a bit. Um, or it's countercultural in any event. Yeah, of course it's countercultural. <laughs> <laughs> Look at our culture, it's crazy. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, to be continued. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn, for being here. Um, I was hoping I could validate a premise for my question first before the question itself. Uh, at any rate. Um, is it correct that right view is the statement that all phenomena are not self? Is there more to it that I should no, be thinking no. of? Right, okay. right view is the four noble truths. Okay. And that, it, how does that statement relate to the four noble truths? Okay. With the four noble truths, each, each of the truth has a duty. Okay. The duty with regard to the first truth, there's just suffering is to comprehend it. The duty with regard to the second is to abandon it. The duty with regard to the third is to realize it, and the duty with regard to the fourth is to develop it. So you, in order to un- comprehend suffering and to abandon its cause, the Buddha gives us a, a pattern of reflections. First, you want to watch this thing arise when, when it's arising, what's causing it. 
Mm-hmm. Secondly, then you want to watch his passing away. Third, you want to look at, at the allure. What is it about these clinging aggregates that you really like? Yes. What is it about craving that you really like? And then fourth, you want to look at the drawbacks. Yes. And this is where the three the three perceptions come in. I did the I did I put the three characteristics first accidentally, didn't I? Yeah. Thank you. Um, that was helpful. So. Thank you. Uh, so the statement you made around all phenomena are not self-containing the seed of its own transcendence. When I carry my concentration practice away from formal like sitting meditation or walking meditation, I can kind of perceive that amoeba as I go through daily life where I'm selfing and not selfing. And I can sense the practical utility, <clears throat> excuse me, utility of that statement containing the seed of its own transcendence. So I find myself curious what statement, if any, contains the seed of transcendence for getting away from statements of truth. Okay. Well, that one is one of them. Okay. Okay. So you don't let that go. You just hold on to it until the end. Yeah. Okay. Again, that's when you said all, all truths have to be transcended. Okay. Ultimately you're going to have to turn around and look at this truth too. That, I think, was the phrasing I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Tana John, I have a question, uh, again, uh, regarding at the moment of death. What are skillful strategies that we can use from the perspective of self, not self? Like, for example, think, letting go of the body, because uh, thinking it's not self. Um, that's my question. Okay, well, you have to decide how, how far you feel ready to go on this. I mean, it, it, ideally, you should be able to drop your identification with everything. And, and there are people who gain awakening at the moment of death. However, your mind doesn't have the strength to say, okay, I want to hold on to the idea. If I have to come back, I want to come back to a place where I can practice. Yeah. So hold on to that. Thank you. So earlier you said that the teaching of not self is neither eternalism nor annihilationism. (laughs) But um, in Udana 8.2, there was this sentence, for those who see and know, there is nothing. It sounds quite blunt. And it (laughs) it sounds like annihilationism. Could you please explain that? I see. The nothing there is nothing worth clinging to. Oh, so no object for papancha. Is that what it means? Or for papancha for clinging or craving or anything, yeah. I see. So um, it uh, that sentence describes the state of Nibbana, right? Right. And it, in, in Nibbana, there is still the consciousness without surface. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you very much. Hello, Tana and John. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm getting the message that uh, question, <laughs> questions of ontology are irrelevant for this journey. Um, what confuses me about that? I, I can, I can probably work with that. Um, um, what confuses me is that there seem to be other questions of ontology in the scriptures um, in relation to. Um, other realms and beings such as devas. Um, that's something that I've really struggled to square with. Um, okay, well, the Buddha's not saying that all questions of ontology should be thrown out. 
mean, after all, he does say that nibbana exists. That's that's a that's, that's a big ontology right there. But the question of what you are, that's defined by your defilements. And as long as you keep defiling defining yourself by your defilements, you're going to be preventing yourself from getting awakening. So that's a particular ontology question that you put aside. Thank you. Good evening, Bhante. Thank you for teaching us. We are ever so grateful. Tanisara Bhikkhu. Bhante, if my understanding from your morning um, or this morning's um, talk is about, is this correct? Hold on to a sense of self until we are ready to like use it skillfully in order to reach Nibbana. And once you reach Nibbana or have crossed the path, then you can put aside the raft and there is no self at that point in time because you've already reached the farther shore. So use oh, skillful yeah. discernment. You use, your, you use your discernment. Again, think of yourself as not just one self, but there are many selves. And you have to figure out which, which of your selves are going to be useful for the path, which you have to let go of. So it's not like you just hold on to your idea of you, but you have to question, okay, what, what is worth holding on to in me? What is worth identifying? And then when you get to the other side, then you put all perceptions aside. Right. It's, this, is, this is where, you know, there's a passage where John Mahabu was asked whether Nibbana was self or not self, and he says, Nibbana is Nibbana. Self and not self don't apply at that point at all. So Bhante, are we using this um, self like to get rid of all the unwholesome states in our minds <laughs> that arise, basically, right? Because yeah. um, and and in the living present moment, as they arise, stay and pass away and see anatta in everything, and then once we reach that in a meditative state, skillfully, um, and reach the stages towards the enlightenment, right? And once we reach nibbana datu, the self completely, there there is absolutely no self at that point. There's, again, the Buddha wouldn't say there is no self. It's simply that you don't use the concept at that point. Yeah, that, exactly. That, yeah, that, that perception is gone. Yeah, so conventional. But, but, but again, truth but again and as you're truth. getting there, you're, you're going to be letting go more and more and more. You, yes. you know, you stop identifying with the aggregates. Yes, and that's the result of stream entry. But even after stream yes. entry, there still is this sort of vague sense of I am mm-hmm. that lasts through until our Sakudagami, anagami, and our hardship. Yes. Uh, once you hit that, that's gone. Yes. Okay. So the question, question is, which of your many, which of your many gitas are? <laughs> Let go of all of them, Bhante. It's just a bunch of suffering. You can't you can't just throw them out. You have to sort through them. Which ones are worth keeping and which ones are not? Yes, absolutely. Keep a hold on to the wholesome stories until we fully develop them. Thank you, Bhante. May you live a long and healthy life and teach us lots of Dhamma. Thank you, Bhante. Um, I have a question um, that's different. Um, and, and what brought it up was when you were talking about view. And for me, it was holding to views and and identifying with views. But this is somewhat different. This is about starting to lose your mind, which I have, and this might not be the proper time. And also tell me that. So that 
you know, part of I seize my identity is thinking, feeling. But when sometimes this happened, I would read something like multiple times and not remember anything in it. There was no clinging in the mind to what I was reading. Um, and so there is that sense of sense of self that's not there to be identified with, which is sort of okay, but I don't, it's, it's sort of like it was hard sometimes to practice because you're forgetting a lot of what you know to practice. And, and that's sort of okay because I did notice moments of awareness, even though I wasn't quite aware of what I was aware of, if that makes any sense. But I knew that there was something. And and, and that happened a lot. Yeah. So I guess when I'm thinking about self and non-self, I'm also thinking about, you know, um, if we lose a function like mind or seeing, well, seeing is different because it's a sense or, or the mind, which is what um, I know is a lot of my practice as well as the body. Um, I'm not really articulating well, but I'm wondering what do we do when we start going and, and losing our mind, how to continue to practice yeah. or what this, is self and what is not. This is where you have to work on as much mindfulness as possible. Um, we'll be talk- as I said, we'll be talking about the skillful use of self this afternoon. And so you, you want to make, you know, re- keep on remembering, reminding yourself, okay, what are the important things I need to know? And just keep working at trying to remember that. What are the important things I need to know? I need to know what the state of my mind right now. I need to know, you know, when my mind is going off into something unskillful, how to stop it. Okay, but when the mind's not there. Okay, then just say, okay, I'll wait until it comes back. But what if it, sometimes it doesn't, well, I don't know what happens on the other side of what I'm talking about. It's a totally different world. So I think there's a way of clinging to what I know versus what could be beyond that. Yes? Okay, well, for the time being, I'd say hold on to what you know. Whatever good things you know, hold on to those. Okay, and should I keep it simple? Like, yeah, maybe keep it simple. Like Excuse me, could you repeat that? Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Give yourself some very simple instructions. Okay, that's just what I've been doing. Um, thank you. Um, let me get to some of the questions here. Okay, and hopefully I get this right because some people are not putting things in terms of questions. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Alaga Dupama Sutta, the Buddha speaks of the Ben who grieve over the loss of his Atta as grieving about something which does not exist internally. Could this be a determinative that the self does not exist? No, because again, when the Buddha said you take his teachings, there are two types of teachings. There are the teachings where you, you take a take the teaching just as for what it says and try not to work out the implications. And the second one is where you try to work out the implications. Now he says, if you try to work out the implications that there is no self, you're taking his teaching in a place where he, he wouldn't take it. Because he says again and again, do not go to, do not work out that particular implication.
Okay, in Majima There's there's a the essay on the short book called The Mirror of Insight, and I've written about this there. But the Buddhist the two types of teachings that the Buddha gave, whether we should take draw out their implications or just leave them as they are. The next question is, uh, Dear John, do we delight in the process of eye-making and my-making, or do we delight in the world that we build around that, or my, what do we cling to here? You can delight in the eye-making, you can delight in the world. I mean, there's lots of things you can delight in. You've got to be careful about where you take your delight. Another question. In Majjhima 25, Nibhapa Sutta, views about the self being the body, etc. The undeclared questions are said to be Mara's doing, hurdles that he has fabricated to prevent meditators from escaping his grasp and influence. Uh, are subtle I am conceits and fabrications of identity, identification, anatta in the sense of the body, uh, that they are one of Mara's tools or strategies to keep one bound to rebirth. Okay, the question is, how are you going to use them? There are ways to use yourself in order to make yourself bound to rebirth, but you can also use your sense of self to motivate yourself to practice. This is why you have to be very careful about which sense of self you identify with. There is the self that would want to keep on coming back, coming back, coming back, and that's one sense of self. But you also have another sense of self that would like to be free, and that particular sense of self is useful. Remember that what the Ananda talked to the nun about conceit. That you know, eventually we're trying to get beyond conceit, but we use conceit to get there. And the conceit is, if other people can do this, they're human beings. I'm a human being. Why can't I do it too? Uh, this is one dependent co-arising. Dear yeah, last one. Uh, dear, dear Ajahn, dependent co in co dependent co-arising are these phenomena co-arising together? Or they arise as a as in sequential steps. If they arise together, then when one removes one of the phenomena, all of them stop. The problem is that it's both. It's both. It's both um, arising together at the same time, passing at the same time, and also arising together, arising over time. This is why it's so complex. Look at the book Shape of Suffering, and it has a very thorough discussion at that point. Yeah, this might be a, a little off topic, but you know, I um, I've vacillated a lot on you know how how you know where I stand and in, in the and in believe in um, rebirth. But uh, there's a passage I don't recall which sutra it's from, but it's um, talking about. Uh, it's a funny analogy. The Buddha says, you know, if there's a fire and you um, put out the fire, if you ask, you know, oh, where did it go? And in the West, the East, you know, that that would be um, nonsensical. So, um, yeah, I suppose my my question is. Um, What's the, if one, you know, like, because you described how ultimately, like, you want to get to a, a place where you're not reliant on any sort of 
um, ontological certainty. It's more like just the causal certainty of, you know, this, um, well, like, you know, this is going to be skillful. This is going to be unskillful. Um, so I guess I'm just wondering how I should, how I should approach like the uncertainty of um, rebirth and like how it should relate to just um, being committed in, in practice. Okay. Well, it's, it's good to take as a working hypothesis. You don't know for sure whether it's there or not. But ask yourself, if I actually took this on as a hypothesis for a while, how would I live my life? As opposed to how I, how I would live my life if I didn't believe that my, my actions had long-term consequences. And you realize that you tend to be more responsible with your actions, and you have to be more careful about your actions. The image of the fire that you just mentioned refers to the arahat. I mean, that's someone who has no more, no more fuel for being reborn. But as long as we still have craving and clinging, there's going to be fuel. So it is possible to talk about someone dying here and being reborn there. In fact, the Buddha uses a different image of fire for that. He says it's like a fire going from one house to another, and it basically it clings to the wind as it goes. The same, the same way you cling to your craving as you go. So you can focus on, well, if, if the craving is going to be the problem, maybe I better work on my cravings right here and now. You understand how I'm not swept along by them. Next question. Carolyn. Thank you, Bhante. Thank you, Bhante. Um, my question is about uh, spiritual bypassing. Mm -hmm. And so when you um, suggested that you choose the self that, you know, that we have many selves that is the most skillful, I was concerned that if some of the less skillful selves, well, I don't know if they're less skillful. Let's say we go back to Western psychology and look at family systems and consider there is these frozen parts of ourselves that were frozen by trauma at age seven or eight or nine or two. <clears throat> and if we don't address those selves, they will keep coming up and being traumatized by everyday living. And so my question is around, well, if we ignore those selves, then um, because they're not skillful, they're, they have these belief systems, then we're not really taking care of them in a way that would be liberating. Okay, this, this, in this case, you have to look at, well, what would be a skillful approach to those selves? A skillful approach would be to create a space in your mind where you feel secure enough so that you can sort of bring these selves up and say, okay, what's the issue? Let's talk. But first, first you have to create that space inside. And then and when we say that you sort of let go of other selves, in some cases you can't, you can't just say, well, goodbye, we're gone. You have to say, okay, let's talk things over first before you go. And sometimes, you know, these selves that are, are traumatized, whoever, they may have something to offer. And so you will need to listen. <clears throat> right, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's where you learn, right? <clears throat> that edge. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. Last question for the morning, Maria. 
Ashan, my question is related to um, applying no self-teaching to my daily life. And uh, I'd like you to validate if I'm understanding it correctly and if my thinking is comprehensive. So uh, the way that I think about it in applying no the not self-teaching of the Buddha to my daily life is um, along the idea of don't take things personally. So that's one. Two, don't believe everything I think. And then three, let go of... Uh, what I'm attached to, whether that's my expectation, my thoughts of others, or my ideas of what I'm identifying with. Is that correct? And is it comprehensive? Okay. Well, it's not quite comprehensive because there are some things you got to hold on to in the meantime. Yeah. And you decide, okay, these in this, you know, this particular issue that I'm holding on to right now, is this going to be helpful? Is it not going to be helpful? Um, and be selective in how you let go of things. Let's put it that way. Don't just, okay. kind of drop, don't just drop all your expectations. Say, you know, you have some expectations for the path. And, and the Buddha had expectations on his path, right? He said, I'm going to find the end of suffering. And he held to that. So you hold on to the good things. And that's, just, that's largely a question of discernment, learning how to let go of the unskillful ones, like we said just now. Sometimes you just say, well, goodbye. Other times you have to say, no, we have to talk things over first. Before, before we part ways. So the, the, I, I guess I wasn't, so I hear what you're saying. And so what the way that I apply this is if I'm creating misery for myself or others, that's when I start questioning, oh, should I believe what I'm thinking? Is this right? Right. Yeah. So so I'm not letting go of all my, yeah. So I think I'm doing what you're saying. And I think what you're saying, so. So have I missed anything other than what we've talked about? Well, uh, we're going to be talking about this particular topic more this afternoon. So tune in. Okay. okay. Thank you. And then we can then we check in at the end of the talk. <laughs> okay. Well, we right. come back two o'clock my time. Yeah. Another two hours from now. Yeah. Two o'clock Pacific time. So we'll see you all then. Okay. Be well in the meantime.